writing, the views of the author are not their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Francis Tavern Museum or the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York. Uh, some quick announcements before we begin. The next evening lecture will be on March 19th, presented by Tom Satcham. On March 27th, joining us for Tavern Trivia Night. This month's theme is New York City history, colonial outposts to concrete jungle. Tickets for that can be purchased on the museum's website and include two drink tickets for drinks at the bar downstairs. Tonight, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Matthew Pasello, who will be presenting The Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. Matthew is a historian and the vice president of the David M. Rubinstein National Center for White House History. He joined the White House Historical Association in 2016 after completing his PhD and MA in American History at the Marquette University. He has received research fellowships from the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, the United States Capitol Historical Society, and the Fred W. Smith National Library at Mount Vernon. Matthew also teaches a course on White House history at American University and leads the Association's Research Initiative Slavery in the President's Neighborhood, which launched in February 2020. I would now like to welcome Matthew to the Well, thank you, everyone, uh, for coming tonight. And uh, every time I go to a different place, uh, you know, these sites have very different meanings for Washington's legacy. Um, I think the battery's dead. I get it. That's fine. I can just, uh, just scream. I can just talk louder. So. Um, and, uh, you know, with Washington's legacy here, um, you know, bidding his officers farewell in 1783, uh, on his way back uh, to Mount Vernon, stopping in Annapolis to surrender his command, arriving Christmas Eve 1783, um, you know, if only Washington knew that this wasn't going to be his farewell to public service, that he wasn't going to be called back in uh, to serve uh, as president of the Constitutional Convention, later as president of the United States, and then even during his retirement, uh, even after two terms when uh, he had really given all he could to the country and he went back to Mount Vernon, uh, people followed him there. And uh, because of the Virginia Code of Hospitality, because of his public persona as a very virtuous Republican citizen, George and Martha entertained people, uh, sometimes complete strangers. And even towards the end of his life, when he was enjoying retirement, he was very much still a part of this memory-making process. But after he died, politicians, businessmen, entrepreneurs, enslaved African-Americans, Washington's family, uh, all played their different parts in trying to commandeer and control the legacy of Washington. But unfortunately, uh, our story really begins where Washington's ends. On December 14, 1799, between 10 and 11 o'clock at night, uh, George Washington passes away at Mount Vernon. Uh, he had fought an illness uh, that began actually the previous day. Martha had called three different doctors uh, who applied uh, the medical remedies of the day, uh, which most of which was bloodletting. Uh, there's some debate about whether or not that is what contributed to his death or whether it was the actual infection that killed him. Uh, medical historians have diagnosed his case as uh, acute epiglottitis. So uh, swelling of the larynx, it would have slowed his breathing and eventually he would have suffocated. Uh, now, whether or not it was viral or bacterial, that's up for debate. If it was viral, perhaps all that bloodletting contributed to his uh, succumbing to the, to the death. Or uh, if it was bacterial, it wouldn't have really mattered because antibiotics weren't invented yet. Washington would have eventually died. But 
the United States isn't really prepared for this moment. This really is the first time that we see a, a national outpouring of grief. Uh, there's public funerals and ceremonies in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Charleston. Even though Washington only asked for a private funeral at Mount Vernon, it's one of the things he asked his family for. Uh, he specifies that he wants to be laid out in the new room for three days to ensure that he is fully expired, uh, which was common at that time. People were terrified of being buried alive. He's dressed in grave clothes, and, uh, and then his family essentially puts on a small private funeral, uh, but it wasn't that small. Uh, there were a lot of friends, a lot of dignitaries, uh, cavalry members, infantry members from the Revolution, uh, the Freemasons, uh, members of the clergy. Uh, so it is, it is more of a, a larger celebration of life at Mount Vernon. But after Washington is gone, the question becomes, well then, who is going to control his memory? Who's going to control his legacy? Now, during his life, Washington played a major part in controlling this, this image, this reputation. It was something that he cultivated and guarded very carefully. But with him gone, all these different groups vied for control. Uh, and they wanted to claim that, uh, that they were the ones who really should be the guardians of Washington's legacy. Now, only 10 days after Washington dies, Congress actually sends correspondence to Martha Washington saying that they've passed a resolution that they'd like to move Washington's body to the Capitol Rotunda when it's finished. So in 1799, that is the first attempt to move Washington's body to a place that actually doesn't exist yet. Uh, they'll do it again in 1816, but this time it's the Virginia General Assembly that wants to move his body to Richmond. In 1830, Congress will ask again. The Washington family denies it. And then in 1832, uh, they ask a different Washington family member because it's the centennial of George Washington's birth. And again, it's denied. Uh, so there are four different attempts by government bodies to move George Washington elsewhere and build a monument or mausoleum in his honor. Now, these requests for Washington's remains weren't just for politicians or governments. In fact, ordinary citizens uh, were asking the Washington family about possessing a piece of Washington. Quite literally, uh, for example, his hair. Uh, this is a locket that is in the Mount Vernon collection that is believed to have George Washington's hair inside it. Uh, and this was common in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries as part of American mourning culture, uh, is that family members would actually take locks of hair from loved ones and hold on to them as mementos, and sometimes they would give them uh, to people. Probably the most interesting case that I found in my research, uh, because there were, I think, very credible asks, but then there were also very unreliable asks. Uh, there's a man uh, from Rhode Island. He says that he served with George Washington in the Revolution, and he writes this letter to Martha. I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, oh, by the way, uh, I've been accused of stealing horses, and I could really use a pardon. So if you could write the governor of Pennsylvania on my behalf, that would be fantastic. She doesn't actually do it. Now, as we move into the early Republic period, uh, we have the election of 1800. So there's a lot of conversation about what direction the country is heading in. And the tide seems to be pointing away from the Federalists and towards the Democratic Republicans. Uh, but it's really interesting because in 1790 and 1800, the Federalists are really making this push to entomb Washington in some kind of nationalistic uh, tomb. In fact, this is one of the designs. Uh, the Federalists wanted to create a mausoleum uh, in Washington, D.C. 
and it would have been pyramidal in shape. Uh, this is a, a design that was uh, sketched up by Benjamin Henry Latrobe, uh, the famed English architect. Uh, but essentially, it would have been a mausoleum about 100 feet by 100 feet at its base, uh, which would have made it roughly about 150 feet tall. Uh, it would have been one of the largest structures in the early United States. Uh, and as you can imagine, the reaction to this is pretty visceral. Uh, Jefferson and his supporters state, you know, the revolution wasn't fought by one man. It was fought by many men, many women. Uh, so when we commemorate our heroes of the revolution, is it fair to idolize one person? Uh, they say that this is the Federalists essentially trying to turn Washington into some type of deity. Washington wasn't a pharaoh. He wasn't an emperor. This is not what he would have liked. Now, eventually, they end up losing that battle because they lose seats in both the House and the Senate in 1800. Uh, so Democratic Republicans are able to stifle that effort to entomb Washington in a, in, in a grandiose mausoleum. Now, Washington's family also plays a role in denying these applications. This is Bushrod Washington, uh, who was George Washington's nephew. Uh, and he actually inherits Mount Vernon after Martha Washington's death in 1802. He was a Supreme Court justice. Uh, he was a proponent of federalism. Uh, but he was also uh, an advocate of individual rights. Uh, so depending on the case, he might side one way or the other. But when it came to property rights, he was especially, uh, he, he was especially firm on that. And he had to be because at Mount Vernon, uh, people started treating the estate like it was a tourist destination and not a private home. So the next time the application is made, uh, as I mentioned earlier, 1816, the Virginia General Assembly asked Bushrod Washington if they can move his body to Richmond. And, uh, and he simply says that he looks at the will and his uncle was very clear. Uh, he wanted to be buried at Mount Vernon. And, and that's what he wanted in his will, case closed. In 1830, there's another effort. Uh, but at that time, the Washington family is actually building a new tomb at Mount Vernon. So if you've been there before, how many people have been to Mount Vernon? Most of you. Uh, there's two tombs. There's the old tomb and the new tomb. Uh, most people go visit the new tomb. Uh, most people, maybe they pass by the old tomb, maybe they don't. Uh, but the old tomb is, is more a, a sort of sunken into the side of the hill, closer to the river. The new tomb is closer to the vineyard enclosure, which uh, what Washington called for in his will. That's where he placed the tomb to be made. Uh, but this is actually an artist's en engraving of what the new tomb looked like in 1834, uh, which is pretty different from the new tomb that we know today. Well, that was because that was, this was the original new tomb. Uh, later, they added the brick enclosure in 1835. And then in 1837, that's when they added that brick Gothic archway. Uh, so it was done in stages. And people were pretty critical of this. Um, there was one gentleman who said that uh, he was shocked that Washington's remains reposed in a place like this. And he said it's a place that he wouldn't put his pigs. Um, so that was a pretty striking comment. Now, the Washington family, especially Bushrod Washington, uh, imposed these different rules to try to keep people away from the family and out of the house. So if you were going to Mount Vernon, you needed to have a letter of introduction, or you needed to know Bushrod Washington, or you needed to know John Augustine Washington in order to get into the house. If you didn't, you were left to pretty much wander the grounds. And, uh, and the last private owner of Mount Vernon, John Augustine Washington III, he changes this policy because he sees that there's money to be made. There's money to be made on George Washington's name, and, uh, and he's going to profit from it. 
And it's, it's sort of an interesting turn uh, when you think about it because when you go to Mount Vernon today, you go there to see the house. But in the 19th century, you couldn't get into the house. So people went to Mount Vernon to see the tomb. It's sort of an interesting reversal that most people don't think of today. Now, John Augustine Washington III, he invested in internal improvements projects, uh, what was the forerunner to the George Washington Memorial Parkway to bring people down uh, from Washington, D.C. And then he actually entered into a contract with one of the steamboat companies, the Washington and Alexandria Steamboat Company, uh, because steamboats had actually been bringing people down to Mount Vernon since the 1820s. In fact, Bushrod Washington threatened to sue the steamboat captains numerous times uh, because they would keep dropping people off and, uh, and he insisted that it's private property and they can't do that. John Augustine Washington decides to reverse this. He actually has a wharf built and he has this wooden plank walkway added so that when people get to Mount Vernon and they land at the wharf, they have an easy way to walk uphill uh, to go visit the tomb and, and to visit the old tomb. In fact, he actually charges uh, the wood and then the labor of his enslaved workers to the steamboat company. Uh, so he's making quite a bit of money uh, in the process. Now later when the contract is up for renegotiation, he starts asking for a cut of their ticket sales. Uh, he gets 25%, which is pretty good. Uh, I think in one year he makes about uh, $2,000 just off of ticket sales um, and it's 25%, so about 8,000 was made by the company. But again, when it came to advertising, you know, you didn't try to sell people on visiting the house. You sold people on visiting the tomb. Uh, and the Thomas Collier was probably the most famous example uh, that was taking people to and from uh, Washington, Alexandria, and then Mount Vernon. Now he's also uh, crafting things like Washington memorabilia. Uh, and he works with a man named James Crutchett, who's a Washington, D.C. businessman. Uh, he's, he's perhaps better known for installing the gaslighting in the United States Capitol building. But he actually opens up this business, and you can see it right there, Jay Crutchett Mount Vernon Factory, uh, right near the railroad depot in Washington, D.C. And he enters into a contract with John Augustine Washington III to purchase wood from the Mount Vernon estate, bring the wood to D.C., and then make these trinkets, mementos, commemorative coins, bowls, medals uh, in his shop, and then he sells them to people. So people that don't have time to go to Mount Vernon can still get a piece of Mount Vernon of Washington's world. And of course, you're gonna need a certificate of authenticity uh, so that people believe you when you say, this is from Mount Vernon. And my favorite part, uh, we have John Augustine Washington's statement and then William Magruder, who was the mayor of Washington, DC. Uh, and he says, this is to certify that James Crutchett purchased from me a large amount of timber trees, Etc. standing on my estate at Mount Vernon in Virginia, a portion of this timber was growing upon the same hill on which the mansion and tomb at Mount Vernon stood. And he says a portion. Very small amount because based on the uh, different spaces that he marked out, a lot of the trees actually came from the interior of the estate. In fact, some of them came from along the river um, in an area that George Washington affectionately called Hellhole. Now, Washington called it Hellhole because nothing would grow there. Uh, he had no success growing things along the river on that part of the property. And, uh, and today it's the site of the Pioneer Farm if you go to Mount Vernon. It was swampy. Uh, a lot of the wood was decayed and dying. But uh, John Augustine Washington thought it would be suitable uh, to sell to James Crutchett, apparently. 
So there's these different political efforts uh, to try to move Washington's body, to build a monument, to commemorate his political legacy, his military legacy. Those ultimately fail. Washington's family, uh, they deny the right to move Washington's body, and eventually the last private owner warms up to this idea of Mount Vernon being more of a tourist destination. So then, uh, as I was researching, I asked myself, well, if the Washington family doesn't want anything to do with people that are visiting, who's actually interacting with people? Uh, because there's constant uh, newspaper accounts, letters, recollections, where people talk about visiting Mount Vernon and their experiences and who they spoke with. And uh, in the early years, oftentimes it was either one of the foreign-born gardeners or overseers, but then later, it was uh, enslaved African-Americans. And this is actually an image uh, post-Civil War, uh, because a lot of these African-Americans continue in these roles even beyond when the Mount Vernon Ladies Association acquires the property. Um, in fact, a lot of them are the ones that help them with preservation efforts because some of them have lived on the estate for 20 years, 30 years. They remember what was in the rooms, and, and the ladies can only really work with the documents they have. Uh, so the early forerunner to historic preservation is based a lot on, a, on oral histories and oral traditions of the African-American communities that were at Mount Vernon. Uh, this, I really like this, uh, this particular thing. So first off, uh, you know that you're a pretty popular figure when your tomb has its own ballad. Um, but secondly, the image that they decide to use. Uh, so you have a mid-19th century, affluent, genteel family, and who's sitting beside the tomb? It's an African-American man who's selling walking sticks. And that was something that I found uh, quite often. Uh, not only were people breaking off tree branches and making their own canes, but enslaved people at Mount Vernon were making their own canes and selling them to people. And this role of uh, an African-American man being like a, a guardian or a sentinel to the tomb, that also continues beyond the Civil War, beyond emancipation. Um, and, and there's a number of figures I mentioned in the book. Uh, Edmund Parker is one of them, uh, Jim Mitchell, um, that they'll actually go on and they'll serve in this role as essentially guardian of the tomb. This is a little bit, uh, a little bit later than 1850, so this is right on the eve of the Civil War. Uh, again, you can see a young African-American boy uh, peering into the enclosure. And again, another affluent gentleman. You can see that he has a, he's collected his walking stick based on the shadow. Um, so he's already seized his own. Uh, but I include this image because it wasn't just enslaved men. There were enslaved women and also even enslaved children who were providing tours, providing directions on site, uh, and also selling things to people. It really sort of depended on where you were working on the estate. Um, and there's numerous references to people going to the gardens and uh, there were enslaved African-Americans selling uh, fruit, bouquets of flowers. Uh, and I think the idea behind it was, yes, those that were there were profiting from it, but I think John Augustine Washington also hoped that by selling people things and sort of managing what was taken from the estate, it would help minimize vandalism, because that became a big problem in the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, people were carving their names into the tomb, into the door. Uh, they were breaking off chunks uh, of the stone, uh, of the brick, but then also these obelisks that were raised later in the 1850s. That's part of the reason why there's a 
metal gate around it uh, because people were chipping uh, the sides of it off. And here's a picture of Jim Mitchell. Uh, this is after the Civil War, but again, you can see what's behind him, the walking sticks. Um, and so African-Americans, uh, a lot of them actually probably had more connection to the property and to the estate than some of the Washington relatives because uh, you know, Mount Vernon passes to his nephew and then it goes to his nephew's nephew and, uh, and then it goes to his nephew's nephew's nephew. So now you're getting pretty far removed from family members who actually lived there, knew Washington. Um, one of the more interesting things that I found is that there were quite a few enslaved African-Americans who claimed to be the last servant of George Washington. Um, by my count, I found about five or six. But it was a role that especially elderly African-Americans were playing because people bought into it. Um, and what's more interesting is people gave them gratuities for their stories. Now, uh, within Washington's family, there was also this gentleman, George Washington Park Custis, who was Washington's step-grandson, uh, Martha's grandson from her first marriage. Uh, and he took it upon himself to really be the Washington family spokesperson. So he loved giving speeches about George Washington. Uh, later, he became a poet, a playwright. He wrote his famous recollections on the eve of the Civil War. And he really saw himself uh, as the leading advocate on behalf of his uh, step-grandfather. He also uh, later claims in his recollections that uh, when Martha was dying, she told him, I want George Washington to be buried in the Capitol, as it was proposed, and that I want to be entombed with him, uh, which was a very, a very subtle political move by Martha. Uh, but he brings this up in the 1850s. So the fact that this, he's still having this conversation with people, uh, it also speaks to the Washington family not being agreed over the, the idea of moving Washington's body. George Washington Park Custis and others, uh, members of the Custis family, thought that he should be moved. Uh, but the Augustan Washingtons thought that, you know, Washington wanted to be buried at Mount Vernon. He shouldn't be moved. Now, even though things like omnibuses and carriages and uh, steamboats brought more people than ever before to Mount Vernon, most Americans, when they interact with the tomb, it's going to be through visuals. Uh, and from the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, that's when we see this explosion of engravings, illustrations, uh, different prints, uh, daguerreotypes. Um, and this is how most people are going to interact with George Washington's tomb. They're going to see something like this. And you can imagine what most Americans would say when they see something like this. They voice their complaints in newspapers and they uh, send petitions to Congress and the Virginia General Assembly complaining about the state of Washington's tomb. But what you'll also see is the tomb is very much portrayed uh, in what we call the Hudson River School technique that it's really about framing it and making it much more picturesque, that it's supposed to show the abundance uh, of, of America, and, uh, and really you get a sense of what is the focal point of the image, and it's usually not the house. It's usually the tomb. And this one's done a little bit later. This is by uh, a painter, William Matthew Pryor, who again, uh, the focal point is the tomb, and the house is just sort of in the distance, and you can also see it looks like it's in pretty rough shape. 
Now, when visitors came to Mount Vernon, they often described the experience as a pilgrimage. They called themselves pilgrims. They said they were collecting relics. Now, how deep was this belief in that this was like a semi-religious experience? I don't know, uh, but these are the terms they use. So in the 19th century, I, I do think that many Americans felt this very deep, nostalgic pull. And these were the best words they could use to describe their experience. Uh, when I was at Mount Vernon last, I decided to uh, accost another visitor. And I asked him, so is this your first pilgrimage to Mount Vernon? And he was just kind of looked at me quizzically. And, uh, and he was like, what do you mean a pilgrimage? I, he's like, uh, we just, uh, you know, we came to see the museum. And, uh, and, okay, so clearly things have changed from the 19th century to today. But if you think of this site more in that pseudo-sacred historical sense, it explains why people were taking things from Mount Vernon. Here's one example. Uh, this is actually a, a tree leaf from the lemon tree. Um, and this particular person took it because they said that Washington had planted the lemon tree with his own hands. So it was important to take that. Uh, there's letters where people say that they're taking flowers and vines and they're sending it home to their relatives and they're telling them to put them in water, see if they'll grow. Uh, they probably didn't, uh, but the fact that people are believing in this and they want to believe in it, I think it really speaks to Washington's significance. Uh, and this is even much later, 1840s, 1850s. But the place that came under duress the most was the old tombs, uh, the old tomb and the new tomb. So when they moved Washington's body to the new tomb in the spring of 1831, uh, they have to move him and Martha and about 20 or so other family members out of the old tomb and into the new tomb. Uh, but, you know, as you can imagine, that climate in Virginia, uh, the coffins were pretty much falling apart, decayed. So they had to put uh, the remains in a new coffin. Uh, so within the old tomb, there would have been shards of coffin everywhere, right? There's about 25 people buried in there. But that didn't stop people from going in the old tomb afterwards and taking bits and pieces of wood, pebbles. Uh, this one says it's a piece of the, of the coffin, the mahogany coffin, uh, which Washington was originally buried in. Um, there's visitor accounts where um, so the outside of the coffin was actually in this black cloth. And people later say that when they come in there, the black cloth has been ripped to pieces uh, because people have been going into the old tomb and tearing it apart. Now, in 1837, a marble mason in Philadelphia named John Struthers writes to Lawrence Lewis, uh, who is Washington's uh, nephew and the last living executor of his estate, and he offers to make this marble sarcophagus for Washington's remains. Lewis accepts. Uh, he, even sends, uh, he, he even sends Struthers measurements uh, so he knows. And they bring the marble sarcophagus down in September 1837, him and an architect named William Strickland. Strickland later writes a recollection of these events. And, uh, and according to his recollection, when they got down there, uh, and if you've been to Mount Vernon, you've probably seen how small that door is. It's not a very big door in the back of the enclosure. And they were pretty mortified when they found out that this sarcophagus would not fit through the door. So what they decided to do was to tell Lawrence Lewis that 
putting it in the vault probably didn't make sense. A lot of moisture, the marble would go bad quickly, nobody would see it. Lawrence Lewis says, yeah, that, that's, that's probably true, that makes sense. Uh, and so they decide to build that enclosure, uh, the brick arth, uh, arch in 1837. So really that's sort of done by accident. Um, but what's interesting about this is that Struthers has the sarcophagus made. Uh, they later give another one for Martha. Um, and even though I, I passed by it a little bit, um, the Freemasons are actually really involved in this process as well. So in the 1820s, uh, they had actually taken up collections through the various state lodges. And their idea, since it seemed like the Washington family didn't want to give up his body, and the federal and state government couldn't agree on the best approach, they offered to raise money and build a Masonic monument over his tomb at Mount Vernon. It ultimately doesn't happen, but uh, the Freemasons are involved in a, in a number of other ways. Uh, I think five of the six pallbearers are Freemasons at Washington's uh, funeral. Struthers, obviously, uh, is a marble mason, so he's the one responsible for creating the sarcophagus. Uh, there's an Alexandria Freemason named William Yeaton. He's the one who builds the tomb and adds the brick enclosures later. Uh, and even some of the steamboat captains, I found, they had connections to Freemasonry as well. So even though the Freemasons may not get their credit, they're there. Uh, and they're involved in bringing people to the tomb, memorializing Washington. Uh, and they're also still participating in visits to the tomb as well. So the last group that really enters the fray is going to be in the 1850s. And uh, it's the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, uh, led by this woman, Ann Pamela Cunningham from South Carolina. Now, if you've been to Mount Vernon, I think they've, they've finessed their interpretation a little bit more now. Uh, but earlier, they, they would talk more about how the Mount Vernon Ladies Association was not political. Um, you know, they didn't believe in sections. They were a national organization. Um, but when Ann Pamela Cunningham put out the call to save Mount Vernon, she wrote it to the women of the South. And her argument was that it was the women of the South who possessed the virtue to save the home of Washington. And that really, by that account, Washington was a Southerner. He was a Virginian. Remember, this is on the eve of the Civil War. So defining Washington is critically important because as we get into the Civil War, both sides are going to use Washington's image for a variety of different purposes. Now, eventually, she warms up to the idea of including women from the North. And she pays a price for that because a lot of the Southern women disagree with that. They see it as... Uh, I think the secretary calls it an unholy alliance is the words they use. Um, but these people that she references as ruthless capitalists uh, who exploit others, she later figures out that, well, they also have deep pockets and they have a lot of connections. And you know what? Maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to include these women and have it be more of a national organization. And when she does that, fundraising takes off. By 1858... Uh, they've raised enough money to give John Augustine Washington III a down payment uh, on the purchase of the property. And uh, in, in total, they end up paying $200,000 for the property. Uh, but really, it's just the mansion, the buildings, the tomb, uh, and only a handful of acres. So John Augustine Washington still retains most of the Mount Vernon estate, but he's willing to divide up and sell this portion uh, to the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. 
Now, when the Civil War starts, Anne Pamela Cunningham is actually back in South Carolina. So uh, she actually has to put her secretary in charge, Sarah Tracy of New York. Uh, and she'll work with a Virginian named Upton Herbert, who's the superintendent of the property. But immediately, the concern is that uh, you know, this private organization has Washington's home and tomb and world. How will the Confederacy and the Union respond to that? Because you know, based on what they saw with Arlington House and the seizure of different Washington relics and letters and artifacts, they were concerned that the Union Army would do something similar to Mount Vernon. So they actually established a policy where uh, soldiers are allowed to visit, but it's supposed to be a neutral place, and you're not supposed to bring any weapons or arms with you. Now, clearly people didn't listen, uh, but that was the policy at Mount Vernon. And here you can see Sarah Tracy is uh, the woman in the back sitting in the portico, and then Upton Herbert is the gentleman to the right. Uh, but the pairing of a New Yorker and a Virginian again, was supposed to represent this idea of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association being neutral. That's a later uh, photograph of the tomb. But uh, So during the war, uh, that's really when I would argue Washington's legacy uh, gets defined because you have two very different interpretations of Washington. So for Lincoln and the Union, Washington's birthday becomes an occasion to commemorate the Constitution the presidency, uh, Washington's contributions to uh, the United States government. And for Southerners, um, you know, they essentially found the Confederacy on February 22nd. Jefferson Davis takes the oath of office on February 22nd. The Confederate seal has George Washington on it, uh, on a white charger horse uh, with the agricultural staple uh, products of the South. And throughout the war, we see this cat and mouse game of rescuing George Washington relics. Now, more often than not, it is the Union Army that is taking things. That's part of the reason why the South reacts the way it does. Uh, if you've ever been to Savannah and you've seen the Washington cannons outside of City Hall, well, when they found out that Sherman was marching on Savannah, they actually buried those cannons because they were worried that the Union Army would take them back to Washington. And uh, they unearthed them later after the Union occupation. But that's just one example, uh, and that's towards the end of the story, that you know, today I think there's many people that have a very, I think we, we're pretty unified on who Washington was, what he represented. Uh, but in the 19th century, this was a wide open debate. And there were many different groups who vied uh, to have a voice in that conversation, uh, whether it was politicians, uh, Virginians, Southerners, enslaved African-Americans, businessmen, and eventually women, uh, you know, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, they still own Mount Vernon today. Uh, they're still the guardians of Washington's legacy. And I think the reason they were most successful is because they're the ones who were able to take this idea of Washington as the property of the nation, and they use that language uh, in their fundraising efforts, in their publications. They need to save Mount Vernon for the nation. Washington is the property of the nation. Uh, and I think that's true still today. Thank you. I'd be happy to take any questions you might have. Mm -hmm. Why the two monoliths, one for George, one for Martha? So those are actually for the owners that came after George and Martha. So one is for Bushrod Washington and one is for John Augustine Washington, Jr. 
Uh, and my understanding is those were put in uh, in the early 1850s, uh, but you can see they very much look like the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. So I think that's where they, that, yeah, that's where they drew the inspiration from. Uh, they laid the cornerstone for the Washington Monument in 1848, uh, but obviously people knew, they had seen designs of what it was going to look like. So, um, the question was: So, what, what was the what was the status of the estate and the farms and all the things that would have been functioning in Washington's time? What did it look like in the 1850s? Uh, so, every time Mount Vernon passed to a new Washington relative, that property shrunk. Uh, so, when Washington died, I think it was about 8,000 acres. Uh, then, when it went to Bushrod, it was 4,000 acres. And the property kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, what I also found was that uh, you know, people like Bushrod Washington really weren't interested in being farmers. I mean, he was a lawyer and he was a justice. Um, so oftentimes he found himself losing money uh, and, and having to spend money out of pocket, even to buy uh, you know, things like corn and, and salted pork uh, for his enslaved workers. So this decline of the property I mean, it really begins after Washington, and then it grows, I mean, it declines pretty expeditiously under Bushrod Washington. The distillery, I think, burns down during Bushrod Washington's tenure, and they don't actually rebuild it. Um, there's a fire in the greenhouse. If, if you've been to Mount Vernon, you've probably seen the large greenhouse. That burns in 1835. They don't rebuild that. Um, the Washington family just doesn't have the money um, because a lot of their money is actually tied up in, in enslaved people um, because land isn't, isn't worth a lot. Um, so, and really, they kind of focus on what they need to focus on in order to keep the estate running. Now, John Augustine Washington III, he actually goes there to run the property for his mother who still owns it, Jane Charlotte Blackburn. He goes there in, I think, 1841-42, and he's running the property, and he's just he's not really making a whole lot of money. And I think that's part of the reason why he is like the first Washington to really turn towards this idea of, well, there's all these people here and they're interrupting my workers and my slaves and they can't get anything done and they're destroying things. Is there a way that we can control this better but also make money off of it? Um, in the last talk I gave, somebody told me like, oh, I should be more sensitive to John Augustine Washington. Uh, he was just trying, he was trying to get by. Um, and, uh, and I could see that take, um, but also he did quite a bit like the, the wood business with Crutchet that, and that, that wasn't a good reaction. People didn't like that, that Crutchet was selling things. In fact, Crutchet's business goes under pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Now, I may have misunderstood. Was this all this land was gifted to Washington? Oh. Well, he actually comes into possession of the estate uh, after the death of uh, Lawrence's widow. So Lawrence was his older half-brother. And uh, the property went to Lawrence from Washington's father. Then when Lawrence died, it went to Lawrence's widow. Washington ran the property 
uh, while she was still living. And then when she died through Lawrence's will, then it went to George. Early on when he acquires it, uh, I think it's a little bit smaller. It might be about 6,000 acres. So he does expand it a little bit. When he dies, the property is about 8,000. Did he sell it? Was it sold off as a size? Yeah, there were, there were different sales. Like when Bushrod Washington felt like he wasn't making enough money, he would sell the parts and parcel out parts of the property. Uh, but we also know that Bushrod Washington would also sell enslaved people. Uh, that was another way to make ends meet. Yeah? Was the architecture of the house like standard for that time or was his like more forward or maybe a little bit behind? Just kind of wondering like how did the house fit in in terms of the times? Sure. So uh, when Washington was alive, Mount Vernon went through uh, several renovations. Uh, the last one, uh, there's one that goes on right before the revolution and then there's one that goes on later. Uh, towards his retirement. And uh, Washington really wanted this to be uh, sort of in Georgia style, a country estate. It would have been more like a home you probably would have seen in, in England. Um, but, you know, there were examples uh, in the States. Uh, but it just goes to show you that also Washington didn't, uh, I mean, he didn't have the wealth when he first started uh, to build maybe something he would have wanted. I mean, because Mount Vernon isn't made of stone. Uh, so if you really wanted uh, a very regal-looking estate, you would have a house made of stone, uh, like Carlisle House in Alexandria, for example. Uh, but Mount Vernon's actually made of wood, um, and Washington used a process called rustification, uh, which involves paint and sand. So that's why it looks like stone, uh, but it's actually just carved wood. Yeah. So the property goes to Martha, uh, but then by Washington's will, then it goes, it goes to the men through his family. Uh, but because they had no children, George and Martha had no children, it went to his brother's son, Bushrod Washington, so his nephew. Um, now, why Washington decided to keep it in the family, I think, well, because generally that's what you did uh, with, if the last name was Washington, you gave it to the male heirs that were in that family, uh, but also the Custis children and grandchildren, uh, they were pretty, pretty well uh, set up from the Custis estate, from Martha's first marriage. And then when she died, they were going to get Martha's share of the Custis estate as well. Yeah? What were some of the, uh, you're saying the North and the South had different like, interpretations mm -hmm. of Washington. Can you talk about the South and some of their like, speaking points or storylines mm -hmm. around Washington? So there were actually two speakers who went around and they were helping raise money for the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. One was the very famous one, Edward Everett, uh, who was, uh, I think, a, a congressman and a senator from Massachusetts. He was president of Harvard University at one point. But he was very famous as an orator giving his speeches on Washington. And uh, he not only wrote articles and donated the, the proceeds from that contract to the ladies, but he would go around and give his talks on Washington and he would give the ticket sales to the ladies. In fact, he alone raised about $66,000 of the $200,000. Uh, but the man who's lesser known, is, is, there was a Southern order named uh, William, Yancey, uh, William Nancy Yates. And he actually toured the South uh, because Edward Everett 
uh, didn't really feel that comfortable touring the South uh, because he was accused of being an abolitionist. And so he really kind of stuck to the northern states and Yancey stuck to the southern states. But you can imagine, you know, people gathering in a room like we are tonight and they come here to hear a speaker and how different those interpretations of Washington must have been. You know, for, uh, for Edward Everett, it was always about putting country first. It was about Washington setting so many precedents as the first president of the United States. It was about his call for a stronger union uh, after the war, his participation in the Constitutional Convention. Um, so all those things that actually echo in the argument that Lincoln and unionists were making. And for someone like Yancey, he was arguing that Washington was a rebel general. Uh, Washington fought for independence. Washington was fighting because he believed that his rights were being violated. Uh, I mean, so these were all things that resonated with Southerners uh, because they saw the federal government as the new colonial power of sorts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes? Was this a later concept? Why didn't anybody seem to understand the concept of rest in peace? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, I think it just, it, it speaks to how significant Washington was. And uh, in the early years of the country, we needed to decide how we as a people were going to commemorate and mourn our heroes. Now, were we going to be like England or France where the bodies of heroes are treated almost like saints. Uh, you know, you have Westminster Abbey, uh, you have uh, the Pantheon in France. Um, you know, is there going to be a national shrine where our heroes are buried? And if Washington was the litmus test for that, and it failed. And the big argument that Jefferson and others made was that this is a country that should not be commemorating bodies, that's very European. Uh, we fought a revolution against those ideas and that it needs to be more inclusive. It needs to commemorate the people who made revolution possible. And a better way, really, uh, and numerous people make this argument, if you really want to emulate George Washington, you want to honor him, you want to commemorate him, then have people look to him as a virtuous citizen, uh, a model that all citizens should look towards. Uh, his idea of self-improvement, that's something that people should aspire towards. So the idea of creating a mausoleum seems like a waste of money. Let's use that money to fund the national university that George Washington wanted. Ultimately, none of these things happen because it involves, you know, appropriating money. Uh, but it speaks to that conversation about how will Americans worship their famous dead. And because of that, you know, we don't have a place like that. The closest we have is Arlington National Cemetery, uh, and there's only two presidents buried there. But everybody else, there's people that served the country, right? There's soldiers, generals, admirals, politicians, uh, people that served in the federal government in a variety of different capacities. Um, so even Arlington National Cemetery, it, it, it's not a place for leaders, it's a place for people. Yeah? Who's the other one besides Kennedy? William Howard Taft, only president to also be a Supreme Court justice.
So I was in grad school and I was actually, I did a paper on the Washington Monument. And uh, it, it was okay. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, it was interesting. Uh, but I, w I was really drawn to this idea of, you know, when people make monuments, why do they make them? Why do they design them the way they do? Who funds it? Uh, what are the kind of activities that evolve and grow around it? Um, and, you know, seeing these as places where people create a memory of a historic figure, uh, it's almost like living history uh, in a sense. And when I was doing that research, I found this episode in 1832 uh, when it was the centennial of Washington's birth, and uh, it was Henry Clay, who was a you know more of a nationalist, a Whig politician. He brings up the 1799 effort to move Washington's body, and he says, "Well, you know, the rotunda's finally finished. We can move Washington's body to the Capitol." Of course, it's 1832. Uh, things aren't going particularly well between the North and the South. Uh, sectionalism is at a fever pitch. They're arguing over the tariffs. And he decides that this is the perfect occasion to try to move Washington's body out of Virginia into Washington, D.C. You can imagine the reaction that Virginians had and Southerners had. They saw it as an encroachment of state sovereignty, that they were violating the wishes of the dead, uh, that Martha and George would be spinning in their graves if they heard about this very colorful language. And I did a paper just on that episode. And then what I decided was, you know, it would be interesting to see if there were other efforts to try to move Washington's body. And as it turns out, there were a number of them. But I think part of the story is that, yes, Washington was that significant that they wanted to move his body, but his tomb was also a place where all these different things were happening, where people were visiting, where African Americans were interpreting Washington's legacy, where Washington family members were selling trinkets and memorabilia, um, where steamboat captains were bringing people down from Washington. I mean, people were sort of creating their own memories of Washington at Mount Vernon until the ladies came in. Uh, and now that they've become the guardians of Washington's legacy, really everything passes through them. Uh, but it's probably a good thing because I think Mount Vernon probably would have fallen into complete and total disrepair uh, if they hadn't stepped in. That's a great question. Um, so there, there is a, a, a vice regent who's essentially the, the head of the organization, the elected head, and then there are regents from the states. Um, and my understanding is that there's a process within the state, uh, like committees, and that that's how you are able to sort of climb up to become regent of the state. But uh, I'm not exactly sure. They, they, and that process is actually something that they publicly how, talk how about. But. I think currently there's, I don't know if there's one for every state. Um, I think there's 35, 35 to 40 in that range. Yes. Oh, sorry. Can you just talk a little bit about the slaves that Washington had? I think sure. at least one, Billy, right, and the others, I think, Martha released them later. Yes. I mean, what was the process like? So in his will, Washington only freed one man, uh, William Lee. Billy Lee, uh, he's probably more famously known. And uh, he had been his enslaved valet for pretty much Washington's entire career. He was with him at the Revolution, um, you know, with him through the Constitutional Convention, the presidency. Uh, but eventually he leaves early on in the presidency. He just physically can't 
do the job anymore. Uh, he actually had a series of accidents. Um, he fell off a horse. He hurt his knees really bad. And he just physically couldn't do that job anymore. So Christopher Shields, uh, who's one of the enslaved who's there when Washington dies, he replaces Billy Lee uh, as his enslaved valet. He goes back to Mount Vernon, and that's really where he lives out his days. Uh, and he dies at Mount Vernon later. Uh, but in Washington's will, he frees him outright, uh, and he also uh, gives him some, comp some money, some financial compensation, and he gives him the option, if he wants to stay at Mount Vernon, he can live there, uh, or if he wants to leave, that's fine too. But that's it. He stipulates in his will that the other 123 people he owns in his own right will be freed upon Martha's death. Probably doesn't make Martha feel great. Um, because immediately there's a series of incidents that happen that make Martha very concerned. Uh, there's a suspicious fire. Um, she knows that Washington slaves know that that's the stipulation. So she decides to free them early. She frees them on January 1st, 1801. So that's 124 people free, but there was still another 200 about 150 people that Martha owned as part of the Custis estate. So, and also keep in mind that there was intermarriage between these groups, right? So Washington slaves had married the Custis slaves and they had, had children. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think George wanted to free his slaves. He didn't have the power to free Martha's. Now he could have, he could have purchased them from the Custis estate and then freed them but he didn't. Um, so I know sometimes people like to criticize Washington for not doing more. Um, and my general take on it is that if you look at Washington's entire career, he was generally a very conservative, middle of the road approach type with most issues. But his decision to free the people he owned, that was actually pretty radical. I mean. Jefferson didn't do it. Madison didn't do it. Um, the majority of the Virginian slave owners didn't do it when they died. Um, now, you could argue that he should have freed them sooner. Sure. Um, but, I mean, I think it was a pretty, that, that was a pretty radical departure for Washington. Um, when he's sick, he asked Martha to bring his will. And according to Tobias Lear's account... He, she brings two copies of the will. And he looks at both copies and he throws one in the fire. So what was in that other will? I don't know. Uh, and it also doesn't help that Martha then burns all their correspondence after he dies. I think there's only three letters that survive uh, between George and Martha. But that was custom for the time. Uh, you didn't want people to know your private letters between you know, husband and wife. Um, it's certainly possible that the other will that Washington didn't free his slaves. But the one he kept, it ended up freeing 124 people. Um, but we just don't know for sure. Last question? Yeah, in the back. Yeah. How did the feud between uh, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton affect the last days of this presidency? Well, I mean, more directly, that was an impact of his presidency in the first term. So uh, when Jefferson resigns his post as Secretary of State uh, in 1792, 
uh, he sort of steps to the sideline, but you know, Jefferson is not removed from politics, uh, and he's going to be the one, uh, him and his Democratic-Republican allies uh, in the press and the newspapers, who are really going to go after Washington during his second term in office. Uh, in fact, you know, a lot of people ask, well, you know, why didn't Washington run for a third term? And it's, well, he didn't want to be a king. It was too much power. Uh, I also think, frankly, he was exhausted. Uh, I, I think all of these years being away from Mount Vernon during the revolution, serving the country as president, and then by the, his second term, I mean, he was being attacked for his policies, his character. I mean, of all people, um, that was something that Washington really took personally. Uh, and even though we have this image of Washington being very stoic, under control, he had a, he had a pretty furious temper. And that was the kind of stuff that drove him crazy. Um, the last thing I just want to say, because uh, I didn't, uh, the joke I like to make is I didn't put this in the book. Uh, I wish I had. But one of the questions I get asked is, how do you think we should remember Washington? She's <laughs> like, all right, Mr. Smarty Pants, uh, how should we remember Washington? And I thought about it, and I went to his will, and I looked at how he identified himself. So in the will, you usually have to say something like, I so-and-so of this place. And does anybody know what Washington says? I mean, it's a very specific question. Don't feel bad. Uh, it says, I, George Washington of Mount Vernon, a citizen of the United States of America, and lately president of. Do you know what Thomas Jefferson says? It says, Thomas Jefferson of Monticello, of Albemarle County, Virginia. Do you know what Madison says? James Madison of Montpelier, Orange County, Virginia. Do you know what Alexander Hamilton says? Alexander Hamilton of New York. So I just think it's very interesting that in Washington's will, that's how he, he identified himself, citizen of the United States. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's, I hate to give him too much credit, but I think he, it was a pretty good call on his part. Good? Okay.